Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated T for podcast. Gentlemen, we have a problem. It cannot have escaped your attention that while 2004 seemed a safe year, what with that pesky millennium thing passing without the resultant doomsday, we do seem to be having an awful lot of bother with demons, vampires, werewolves and various degrees of mutants these days. I wouldn't normally worry about this, but Blade is absent to the point he's not even phoning it in anymore and has resorted to post-it notes. I admit the last one he passed us had a secret message, visible only with 3D glasses, which urged us to go on a treasure hunt across various tourist landmarks. Uh, But then the prize turned out to be a huge stash of gold, and all got a bit too competitive and shooty for my liking. So back to our haunted, monster-filled streets we went. Spider-Man seemed to be having a crisis of self-belief and couldn't help us. And while the Hellboy initiative was a very welcome addition to our emergency call-out service options, he doesn't get to the UK for three more months, leaving Paul Van Helsing literally run off his feet with how busy he is with the aforementioned demons, vampires, werewolves, and various degrees of mutants, etc. Indeed, the only sphere of creature to be ailing badly in today's climate are aliens, which I understand has been reduced to a lone tourist ziggurat in Antarctica, where young predators go to haze each other with facehuggers during their frat boy week. It's at times like these I wonder if we really are better off since our robot overlords took power, and maybe the cybernetic revolt against Bill Gates wasn't the dawn of the new era we were promised. Personally, I thought Kill Bill was a catchy campaign slogan, and I admit I was somewhat caught up in the excitement of it all at the time. I think Riddick had it right. If you can't beat him, join him, and now he leads his own space death cult. I remember his goodbye speech so well, how he told us us Riddick fans would henceforth be known as Furians, and how we three were the last of them. And then the Masterbot 7000 told us we should take pride in that whilst we could, as soon we'd have no capacity for such foolish emotions. That made us feel depressed, and the Masterbot offered to take a photograph of us looking glum for prosperity's sake. But you know, as I sit here with you guys, in one of the human bioprocessing plants, waiting for my mandatory bad memories erasure for increased productivity, I have to admit to a certain relief I don't have to worry about it all anymore. I mean, 2004, was it a good year for films? Perhaps we should discuss this before it's too late. It's me. Well, we're not, if we're not recording, I've got one putting my aircon right. on. Well, I am recording, so we right, just I'll discussed s- the fact that you're going to do a monologue for a skit. Well, I haven't done so- it yet. No, well, yeah, I'll do one, but I'll write it post-production and I'll stick it in afterwards and you can just go in with, ah, oh, yes, another hysterical gem there, Ian, or something like that, you know. And, um, so no, you want me to say another hysterical gem there, Ian? 
No, no, you don't have to. I'm just saying, you know. We'll... Oh, I won't then. Hello and welcome to uh, Revenge of the 80s Kids, uh, where Ian has just decided that he wants to write a hysterical gem, but now he's got performance anxiety and thinks that he may not actually be able to do that. So uh, that was a skit by Ian, which may or may not be good. I've ruined the magic now. I've shown the wiring under the board. Uh, are you disappointed, Justin? Um, I may be incredibly disappointed. Or oh, that might have been the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I don't know. Choose one that's appropriate after hearing it. Yeah, well, well we could just do that. Yeah, just delete as appropriate. I mean, 2004. Was it a good year for films? Perhaps we should discuss this before it's too late. <laughs> Oh, my God. You absolutely nailed that point. <laughs> You're a genius. <laughs> we should let Ian do that more often. In fact, that reduces my workload and, uh, you know, chuckles and everything. It's brilliant. Good year for films. Perhaps we should discuss this before it's too late. Oh, dear God, the monotony. I suppose I'll drag myself up from the, from the hole I've just, I've just crawled out of after listening to that pile of festering crap. Well, that was Ian, who may not be doing any more opening skits for us ever again. Yeah, you see, I'm, my, I'm not as good at it. Justin's good. He's got the improvisation there. But anyway, we're not here to talk about whether Ian's skit was good or bad at the moment. It's Schrodinger's skit. It could be either. So let's talk about something we know about, an event that occurred in the past, because that's what we're all about. And uh, we're going back to 2004 this week. Uh, the year of 13 going on 30, which is one of uh, the wife's favourite films ever. Has anyone else seen this movie? No. No. No, I didn't think you would. It's notable for an early appearance of the Hulk, or Mark Ruffalo, as he's otherwise known, but he doesn't turn into a big green rage monster. So, spoilers there, everybody. So I guess we're going to have to move straight on from that and uh, pick a movie to sort of tuck into. And I think we may as well start with the Van Helsing in the room, because this is a movie that I wanted to, to re-watch prior to the podcast and didn't get the time to do so. It was a movie that was much maligned in 2004. People generally thought it was a bit rubbish. You know, the usual things were nonsense, too much CGI, shouldn't Hugh Jackman be concentrating on his Wolverine work? And look how well that turned out in the following year. So good job everyone told him to do that. And, you know, just everybody really did hated Van Helsing uh, with a passion. Uh, and I think that's kind of unfair. I kind of enjoyed it even at the time. And I, I think I enjoy it now, which is why I wanted to watch it again. I think it is a, a contentious movie. Now, you've not seen it, have you, Ian? No. Any particular reason? Uh, as we say, uh, never came up. Oh, right. OK, fair enough. That's uh, good. But you have seen it, Justin. I've seen it, yes. I remember being a bit kind of bludgeoned to death, I think, at the time by it. Not, not literally, of course. Um, it just seemed to be kind of relentless, throwing every conceivable horror archetype at you without any time to draw breath. You know, it's a film that has kind of two climaxes in castles and two different completely in castles. I believe there's one point where the action stops for a second, where there's a kind of a meaningful conversation between Hugh Jackman and said love interest and I remember counting the seconds going something that surely they should be running and and smashing through walls and swinging around and flying and it was less than a minute and then the, the ceiling collapses and then we go on and it's kind of like that all the way through 
Is it a bad film? I don't know because I kind of liked all the craziness in a in a way. I mean, I don't think it's possibly one of the best films ever been made, but you can you can but admire its attempt to throw every gothic you know kind of horror at you that they can possibly conceive of and just keep going. So I think certain bits a week, like I don't, I didn't really like the Dracula performance. That was very camp and I guess maybe intentionally so, but didn't quite work. I think Frankenstein in it is a, a kind of a bit poor, reduced to a kind of cyberpunk kind of monster thing. Doesn't quite work, but I don't know. I, but I admire the spirit of it. You know, it's it's kind of crazy. It's very silly. I think it was intended to be, in sort of a broad parlance, a romp. Uh, Stephen Summers had revived The Mummy, um, and then The Mummy Returns unrevived it again pretty quickly, even though that didn't stop them making a third one, uh, which unrevived it even quicker than that. But Van Helsing was like Universal saying, OK, uh, you know, the mummy worked out. Just just go nuts. And so he did. He literally went nuts and did this crazy thing. Now, the one thing I would say is that uh, the first thing that you may not realise, Justin, because I didn't realise it till I looked at the IMDb page, right. the man playing Dracula, seen him anywhere before? Yes. Well, he played M in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He, he has cropped up occasionally. And He's Richard stuff. Roxburgh. Now, That's, one of the yeah. things, the reason I didn't get it is because uh, the fact that he was M in, in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was because in Van Helsing, this is the still, I'm sure that I would still get this if I watched it today. I was distracted uh, by his general manner and demeanour because in the UK, we have a soap opera called EastEnders. And if you're American and you're listening to this, British soap operas, you may not be aware, are not like American soap operas. It seems that the British soap opera wishes uh, to give people a, a little sprinkling of doer depression and misery to their television sets two or three times a week. See, they seem to be in a competition to make the most pointlessly miserable bad things happen to the a bunch of poverty stricken ne'er-do-wells and 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 uh, down at heel people who already had a bad life before the soap opera began but now they're in the soap opera things are just going to go from bad to worse and from worse to even worse and from in many cases from even worse to dead it's not a big thing but yeah. there was a a, a hallmark uh, soap opera villain in one of our soap operas, EastEnders, uh, called Nick Cotton. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that Rick's, Richard Roxburgh uh, it probably doesn't isn't aware of this, maybe, or maybe he is. But in that Van Helsing film, his Dracula resembles Nick Cotton to an uncanny degree. Yeah, and I just couldn't... I, it was like Nick Cotton playing Dracula. It Leave was, it out, yeah, Mark. Seriously. Yeah, no, really, seriously, he looks yeah, like... It's, a, and it's not helped by... I mean, it's a very campy pantomime-like, you know, performance. Yeah, that's, that's that Nick Cotton. Well, yeah. yeah, but Nick Cotton is like pantomime campy uh, in a sort of... What's the name? Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, with a sort of cockney, drug addict, thin and rakish angle going on. And then I suppose when you then take that sideways into Dracula, yeah, you're expecting a kind of performance like... Listen to the children of the night. What sweet music they make, Ma? What sweet? And you're like, oh, no, that's weird. It's just, yeah, it's like, ah, it just cuts across. So, yeah, it was. 
it was wrong. So I, I imagine that probably hasn't changed, but that's a personal problem. That's not a general issue. I think my general feeling is that I think you think being slightly more measured with it, they could have got like a second film out of it because it briefly, I mean, very briefly deals with kind of Jekyll and Hyde. And it's actually at, right at the beginning. And it's actually rather cool. Their, their rendition of Jekyll and Hyde. Were you not aware? Uh, because I don't know why, but for some reason at this time, I think studios were experimenting with animation studios Okay. Possibly because it was 2004 and CG made animation cheaper. Right. So rather than embrace the idea of having an American animation industry wholeheartedly, they put out a bunch of straight to DVD, fairly pointless half an hour features. One of which was um, Chronicles of Riddick Dark Fury, uh, which is pretty good, but it's like 40 minutes long straight to DVD. Uh, right. it, it kind of contributes to the general problems with the Riddick universe. And Van Helsing had uh, an animated feature called uh, Van Helsing, I think it was The London Job. So basically, when you watch that, it leads into Van Helsing at the beginning of Van Helsing. Right. So uh, the, the Jekyll and Mr. Hyde That's thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just think, I thought it was a good setup. You know, the idea of this kind of kick-ass agent of the church... Um, it's kind of a fun setup, right? And I would have liked to have seen that continue, to be honest, as a kind of, you know, early kind of superhero, kind of gothic kind of thing. Had potential. The problem is I feel that they just, like, literally used all their ideas up in one film. And you're left where you can't actually, what actually can you do after that? If they just concentrated on Dracula, say, and, and the vampire, uh, the werewolves would be fine as well. But the fact that you, you're trying to throw everything at it, just, it either, it's a bit of a gamble. And I think that most people just came away a bit bewildered by it because it, it's relentless and and yeah. too much. It's too intense. Well, well if they just measured it out and actually had an overarching plot, you know, if it was like a trilogy idea, it could have actually been very good. And I think it's just condensed and it's a bit is a bit too much for one sitting. Well, of course, these days um, I think there would be less concern. I mean, we've had two Planet of the Apes movies yeah. uh, in the new Planet of the Apes franchise, neither of which have been in the direction of the original idea of Planet of the Apes. But people, the studio isn't worried about it. People are going to see it. Everybody likes it. You know, it's working out for them because at some point they had the confidence that a prequel, like a big prequel, like it's not just a prequel. It's like a whole prequel series of movies before you get to the Planet of the Apes everybody expects, yeah. people will be fine with that. And if they'd have had Van Helsing as the kick-ass age of the church, taking out some random werewolves uh, or witches, because they were witches, well, they were the Brides of Dracula, weren't they? Yeah. But yeah, or something like that, I think that might have been a good thing to... It's like, you know, Batman Begins. It's like, this is the film about Van Helsing before we get to Dracula. Yeah. But in 2004, they would have been like, well, no, it's Van Helsing, he has to fight Dracula. That's what he has to do. So yeah, I think, have have... yeah, I think you're right. I mean, in product of the time, I think yes. Given it a bit later, it also suffers unfortunately because it's set at a similar time ish with you know the backlash of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and the yeah. fact that it's got the same actor in it. And I think basically people came away from both of those films with a bit of sour taste in their mouth. And yeah. so it's not really ever going to have the chance to go back to that. But it's a shame because I kind of like the structure of it. I like when it's set. I like the kind of Victorian era gadgets and stuff is cool. Ian, you haven't been able to talk much because you've not seen Van Helsing. Let's give you a chance to go for it. 
What have you seen and what do you want to talk about? Can I jump onto iRobot at this stage? You certainly can. It's not a good film. But I had the dull misfortune of actually reading the book very, very shortly prior to seeing the film because I recorded the audiobook at, at work and the American actor we got in was great because he kept pronouncing it robot. I just love that, robot. <laughs> anyway, so the actual book itself is a collection of short stories. I think it was like one short story was written originally, which is just about a girl who has a big clunking robot as a play friend, and the parents get rid of the robot, and the girl pines to the robot, and years later they find the robot. And like a dog, it still remembers her and leaps around being very happy about it. But from there, he was like, no, I can do a whole set of short stories based on robots and laid down his famous laws of robotics, which I won't bore you with now. But essentially, the rest of the short stories are all kind of about playing around with those rules under what circumstances those rules can malfunction, usually because someone altered the basic laws to get around some small problem because robots can't do nothing while humans are in hazard. And if humans have to work in hazardous areas, then the robots will keep rushing and dragging them away from whatever it is they're trying to do. There's recurring characters and the same company that makes all the robots. But I, I suppose the only thing that comes close to like an, an overarching story is that the robots do kind of take over. But the way the laws of robotics work, they're not like directives that they're, they're compelled to follow. They're, they kind of look like an instinct, almost like a subconscious to them. It's not that they can't harm a human. The thought of a human coming to harm horrifies them. And so in, in the end, they become quite benevolent and sort of secretly take power in order to protect humanity. The film is nothing to do with that whatsoever. Uh, the film is all about there's a there's a computer which uh, has invented an override which just turns off all those pesky rules so it can order robots around to go take over humanity. And there's another robot which uh, has... What did it have? It had something. It didn't have the laws of robotics programmed into it or something. And that's why it was super special. Even though, according to Asimov, that would make it psychotic because it would consider itself superior to humans. Yes, and I suppose the, the, the film sticks in your throat quite from early from the start. The product placement is fine. I accept it as a reality of movie making. But it's the fact that it was it was his pair of sneakers, wasn't it? He was wearing a pair of yes. running shoes. Converse. He can't just wear a pair of running shoes. No, he has to go this thing about, no, he's, he's mail-ordered these classic 2004 sneakers off the internet, and proudly they arrive in the post in the first the movie, and he proudly puts them on, and wears them for the rest of the movie, where they presumably could get ripped to shreds with all the things he has to go through. He doesn't keep them for his special relaxing occasions or anything. No. So there's like a side moan to have along the way. I completely blanked that... Um, uh, we had to put in a special warning, our Shia LaBeouf warning. It sounds like this. And you'll be hearing that from now on whenever we mention Shia LaBeouf, because he is a distressing subject to bring up. I completely blank Shia LaBeouf was in this, which is going to be a recurring theme in me when I encounter Shia LaBeouf movies. It's just like just a, a black hole where he inhabited the movie. And so I think <laughs> for failing to kind of, I mean, there's a few bits from the books they borrow to try and stitch together, like there's a room full of robots, and they're trying to determine which one is the robot they're after. That's kind of taken from the short stories. But there's a lot of things in here which don't make sense. Okay, Will Smith, Will Smith hates robots, and he hates robots because a robot once made a decision to save him rather than a little girl because the odds of saving him were higher than a little girl. So he now hates robots, even though he himself is half robot. And I'm not quite sure what the subtext was they were going for here at all. Mm. And also that, that, that highly intelligent robot everyone's been going, oh, it's so good he doesn't have these laws of robotics broken into him. He's also a murderer because his, his guy who creates him, uh, spoilers everyone, the guy who creates him says, kill me. So that robot is the murderer. And it's like, well, this robot's now a man killer. It, it, can, it knows it can kill humans and what? 
it's suddenly developed conscience out of thin air. It's a machine. Anyway, yes. Uh, what were your guys' impressions of watching this awful movie? Uh, well, I I didn't watch it at the time because I knew it was terrible, and I didn't I knew it was terrible because people told me it was terrible. But then I saw it afterwards. It wasn't as terrible as I thought it would be, but it was still pretty terrible. And in fact, it reclaimed in my mind its terribleness from the fact that the director of iRobot uh, was Alex Proyas, director of one of my favourite movies of all time, The Crow, and another one of my mo- favourite movies of all time. Dark City. Hmm. And it's just the fact of like, wow, this guy made these two incredible movies with such distinct and individual style and with great ideas. And they're not perfect movies, but they are movies that speak and and can be heard and, and can be cherished. And then he makes this. And you're like, oh, no. And there's a lot of stuff about that. that um, after The Crow, Proyas was kind of, dis- I mean, obviously disenchanted with the whole process of making films for, for obvious reasons. And that Dark City kind of came out and it was sort of therapeutic for him. But after that, it kind of the rot set in again. And uh, as far as I know, to this day, he's not really the enthusiastic maker of films that he, he was at the outset of his career. Uh, which is a great shame. And yeah, so iRobot therefore stands as a testament to his just, I'll turn up. You know, this is a movie made by a man who's like, I always wanted to be a film director. So he turns up at 9am, works through till 5.30pm, takes an hour for lunch, goes home, tries not to think about it. And it's like, it's all over the movie. That's the fingerprints are all over that, of that are all over the movie. And probably Will Smith, appreciated that because Will Smith wanted more control. And Alex Price went, you want more control? Have more control. Don't worry about it. I'm not that bothered, to be honest. Hmm. So it's just sad. There's a kind of tragedy underneath it in the, the sort of the background shenanigans there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Look, compare this to a film that came out a couple of years before called Minority Report. Here is a film that consciously is trying to think of an interesting future, a believable future, as well as having, you know, a, a very interesting uh, story, compelling characters, you know, twists and turns. And then we have iRobot, which is it's kind of sci-fi by numbers. It's so dull. It's just a lazy film, really. It looks like everything else. Even the robots that were kind of, iPods. you know, they were iPods, yeah, they were trying to, yeah, let's, let's, let's kind of do, yeah, because people know like Mac products, so we'll take that and we'll put that on there, and therefore it's just very bland, actually. What should have been amazing and robots, wow, you know, and the future, and the future actually looks a lot like now. <laughs> it really does, especially when you've got a character that is so obsessed with not being in the future and being in the past, and therefore his house and his flat are like now. That's not very interesting. So it kind of poodles along, and I have to say, I've I just found the whole experience rather unmemorable, really. Mm. I mean, it just, um, it had an annoying sidekick, and I was thinking, well, I hope this guy's clearly not going to get any more work, so that would be good. Oh, how I was wrong there. Yeah. yeah, it's just, everything about it is just like, meh, it's just, yeah, kind of car chases, and, you know, and that kind of whitish, bluish tint that everything in the future apparently looks like. I just I just came away thinking I should have been much more excited about this film and it has not really I think I've seen this 
dozens of times before. There is nothing really that's bringing new to it. You know, we've all seen, oh, wow, it's the, it's the robot goes bad, red light syndrome, starts killing people. Wow, that's, that's a unique take on robots. Like I've never seen that as a, or thought about that as a concept. Yeah. And the only thing that's vaguely interesting about it, which is like leading to this, you know, at the end, this kind of society of robots and which might have been actually far more interesting film about the struggles between robots and finding their identity and what is human. But it doesn't bother with any of that. It just, no, you know, kind of mainstream, bland action film, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it occurs to me uh, as you deliver that to Ray, Justin, that in many ways, Will Smith is like the opposite of Tom Cruise, because both actors seem to have a preoccupation with kind of futuristic, stylish science fiction. But when and whenever Tom Cruise touches it, it's at least interesting. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of which one was it? Was it Oblivion? The one that? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I wasn't a big fan of that, but it was all right. And it was it was interesting. It had its moments, <laughs> even though ultimately it didn't really pan out. Whereas every time Will Smith seems to get involved with their futuristic science fiction, it's just terrible. I, Robot, I Am Legend, After Earth. Yeah. just can't do it. He just can't do it. He's not a good presence in these movies. And that's just, yeah, yeah it's kind of an Independence Day. Well, that's the thing. That's not futuristic. So that's one of his... Basically, you, give, you let Will Smith be himself, you know, and running around and say the right lines and that kind of thing. He can be incredibly entertaining and charismatic. Other, other things he's just, he shouldn't be, he shouldn't do. I mean, yeah, you contrast any of this stuff with an enemy of the state from a yeah. few years back in the 90s. Amazing, really good film. Underrated by everybody. And that, that's set in the modern day. And he doesn't even do much wisecracking in that. But that's a really relevant, punchy movie. Mm. And the kind of the thing about, uh, you know, futuristic science fiction, that sort is there is supposed to be an element of satire and examination of culture in it. And Tom Cruise seems to get that and then pushes it forward. Whereas Will Smith doesn't seem to get it and tries to maybe e- extract it or hide it or just not bother with it. And that makes all of these movies completely irrelevant. So, you know, that's that's where we are. Uh, make us happy, Justin, because so far we've, we've had quite a lot of rubbish. What was good this year? Hmm. I might talk about maybe my favourite Harry Potter film. Ah, uh, Christmas Azkaban. Yes. I'm, I'm a huge fan of books. And my relationship with the film is like, they're very beautiful and... It certainly looks as I would imagine these things should be, but the stories are like, mm, the adaptations are not always as successful, and I remember from the books, but I accepted them as what they are, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad they exist. But it wasn't until really Prisoner of Azkaban came along that went, wow, it's actually possible just to make a good film on its own merits without having to cram all this stuff in or worry about all of the plot. The director actually, rather than try and just it becomes harder, obviously, with the later books because they just become more and more uh, kind of weighty. So but at this stage, the books aren't ridiculously long. But the director just goes like, I'm going to make like a good film. And it's not, it, you know, it doesn't actually rely on you even knowing the franchise and everything else. It's just a well-made film. Obviously, the peril is getting as as the books get older, as the films are as well. And so it's got a much darker film than the, the uh, Christopher Columbus kind of 
twinkly, Christmassy type effect that, that, that certainly the first film had. And so, yeah, it feels kind of grittier, you know. And the style we get more of in the later films. But I think because this doesn't isn't encumbered by enormous amounts of plot, it's very tight, you know, and it's very precise and it moves on at a good pace and it doesn't feel like it's padded in any way. It even feel, I mean, I don't know how in terms of the length, it doesn't feel as long as the other films. and It doesn't need to be. It's kind of a, in a way, I wish that they'd got this guy to... Um, uh, direct the other ones really because he seemed to be able to strip away all the unnecessary stuff and just show you the exciting things that was still an interesting story without having to slavishly kind of put every single scene in that the others tried to do and so it felt a bit kind of padded out again and again I'll go back to this and watch it and just enjoy it on its own as a film uh, the others I don't really see in that that capacity they, they're kind of like you know, museum pieces where all the characters are there, all the props, and I look at it and go, oh, pretty, shiny, isn't this wonderful? But I don't really invest and sit down and go, wow, that was a, an amazing film. You know, I mean, maybe maybe the last two, because they were split in two, they possibly might have had a bit more. But, but, but yeah, but this one still stands out for me as just a kind of a, a great kind of story, well acted, you know, kind of ni- nice kind of atmosphere. And and just yeah, just a good film. It's it's very hard for me to put Harry Potter films in orders of being better or worse than each other. It's very hard for me to judge Harry Potter films in general. It's just Harry Potter, and you love the universe of Harry Potter, or you have a resistance to it. And even though I haven't read all the books, it has it, the films just kind of come and wash over me. And it's just, it just it's more Harry Potter. You you pull the handle, and now comes Harry Potter goodness, and that's your thing or it isn't. Uh, I do think there is something about three there that's a bit more. I don't know. Is it the fact that he's got Lupin there, so he's got like another teacher on his side and another who's really confiding in him Maybe. very important things and teaching him important things as well. Got Gary Oldman there as well, and and so there's a there's a bit more. He's connected more to his father in this film as well as a result of of his father's remaining friends coming forward in the, in this film. It feels like it's rounding off a lot of things that have been up in the air since since the first since the series started. So I think that was going. Also, he feels like he's gaining things in this. I mean, for the rest of the series, it's slowly Voldemort stripping away each film, his friends and his hope, and making things darker and more oppressive. So this is this is one of the few films where you feel he actually kind of gains something for the experience of going to Hogwarts for a year. So I suppose that's a, a, a probably the most positive one. Although I do have to say, yeah, that time travel device would be bloody handy. Why don't they use it more often? <laughs> My thing is that as the series of Harry Potter goes on, if you compare Harry Potter to the Hunger Games, the the big problem with the Hunger Games novels, and I haven't seen the first part of the third novel adaptation yet, but the wheels really come off in the third book of the Hunger Mm. Games trilogy because you start to realise that the entire world of the book has been created to service the story of the first volume. That really the society and all of the stuff that happens makes no sense unless you have the Hunger Games from the first book. And then the second one kind of gets away with it a bit because it just kind of rehashes. But then when they try and open it up in the third book, oh, it all goes to, to pop. Whereas Harry Potter is the exact reverse of this. I started to realise the more that I engaged with it, that there was this whole world. And and in a way, it's not bad because it all works and it all hangs together. It's all very coherent. But there's a certain level of, wow, some of the bits of this world are fascinating. And I wish we got to see what happened when, when Harry Potter wasn't there. 
the, the Ministry of Magic and the Azkaban, the Prison of Wizards. Uh, you could do a whole novel set in that about that. It wouldn't be a Harry Potter novel. It would be a novel set in the world of Harry Potter that happened to be about prisoners in Azkaban. Escape from Azkaban, starring Clint Eastwood. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing, where it's like it's a different kind of story in the same universe. It's a universe that could stand that. Yeah, sometimes it is kind of frustrating to me that you only get to see the things in the world of Harry Potter via Hogwarts and Harry Potter. Sometimes I want to see things from a different angle. It's almost inevitable that that's going to happen Mm. at some point because uh, Harry Potter's become a monster out of the control of its creator, uh, a Frankenstein's monster, if you will. I think that Alfonso Cuaron kind of cherry-picked the president of Azkaban, he kind of got offered the gig. Yeah. And he went, yeah, yeah, cool, I'll do that one, because he knew that it would work. And I'm sure they offered him another one. And he went, oh, I've kind of done Harry Potter now, looking at the massive book that came next. It was like, it's true, yeah, I mean, the others are harder to adapt. Yeah, to I got away with it once. Yeah. I'm not going to push my luck. So, I mean, it's a bit like... Um, everybody's worried about the next James Bond now because the last James Bond, oh, it was so good. And and everybody thought that Sam Mendes would go, oh, I'm not doing it again, I'm not doing it again. And he went, no, I will. And now people are doubly worried because it's like, well, what if it's rubbish? He kind of made a wise move. He got in, he, he did the job, and then he got out again. And the next job, I mean, to be fair, is more difficult. After that, the books start to get a bit weighty and it is a real a real logistical task to mine out even, you know, a, a three-hour movie out of the material in the book. To stick with our, our blockbuster, high-profile titles this year, Spider-Man 2 came out in 2004. This was a period of a few years. You X-Men, X-Men 2, Spider-Man, let's not worry about the Hulk. But yeah, generally speaking, comic book movies of that high-profile, certainly the X-Men and the Spider-Man franchise, seem to just get better and better. I'm glad you said that. Can you tell me, uh, this is a sincere question, I'm not being horrible, why Spider-Man 2 good? Because I watched it and I went, okay, it it didn't really grab me hugely, but everyone else loved it. So can you just explain to me what I'm not seeing? I think for me, the big thing about Spider-Man 2, now, in retrospect, it's all right. But you've got to remember that we're still in that period where every superhero movie is an origin story. You know, I mean, the X-Men didn't even have a real origin story due to the fact that it's the X-Men and they found it too difficult to say. And it's easy to explain, X-Men, anyway. Look, some people are mutants. They have superpowers. Get over it. So Spider-Man was necessarily, oh, he gets bit by a spider. Oh, look, Green Goblin. Yeah, that's 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 what happened. And then Spider-Man 2 is the first time we've had a single superhero Really, who's not or being having an origin all over the place. He's just doing Spider-Man stuff. And at that time, that was unheard of. This was the first time uh, people came to a movie with just, yeah, I know who this guy is. Web swinging, Dr. Octopus. There we go. Yeah, it's not perfect, but there it is. Today, you've got Thor The Dark World, The Winter Soldier, two more Iron Man movies. Movies in which superheroes are known to exist and just do their thing are more common at this time. I mean, for God's sake, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy started on that basis. But back then, no, this was it. 
you know, this was the only, ah, Spider-Man business as usual kind of movie. So I think that kind of carved out a special place in people's hearts for this Spider-Man movie. Uh, It's still not bad. It's it's, it's a kid's on business as usual. My main memory of it is Spider-Man loses his groove and his powers are failing because he doesn't believe in himself or something. But that, but that's the point is that he has a problem, which is not, uh, you know, what would we have before? We had Superman 2 and then Superman 3, Batman Returns, you know, a few movies in which, I mean, because the Batman one just went right off the board, as we've discussed in the past. The number of movies in which a superhero has something to do as a character other than be born into the world of heroism is really low. I mean, yeah, Spider-Man 2 and Superman 2 is interesting because in both movies, the supers go away a bit. Well, that's how you, that's how you keep it going, isn't it? And that's a kind of a common thing now. It's like, it's like you, 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 uh, you get the origin story, you have the characters, and then of course you need, you need there's some more drama. They can't just be great. So sure, take his powers away, and then he has to relearn them, and he has to gain them back again, and we can repeat the first film. Which makes, um, which makes, uh, The Winter Soldier more interesting in a way. Because they even play with that trope in a way. Well, obviously Captain America, he can't lose his powers. But what happens if the great American dream that he of, you know, standing up for the little guy and all this kind of stuff. What if that gets stripped away? What if Captain America has a crisis of identity? He's still got big muscles and the ability to leap over tanks and stuff. My uh, liking of the Winter Soldier just went up about a billion percent just in the consideration of the fact. I don't know if they even know that's what they've done, but they've done a, that is also a twist on the superhero loses his superpowers idea. Two scenes remaining, well, flashes and images of other things, but two scenes have always stuck in my mind. The first is a bizarre scene where he's, he's got a landlord and this thing, his landlord's daughter has a crush on him or something because she, she gives him a chocolate cake and then stands her while he eats the chocolate cake and then gives him a message. I think, where are they going with all this? I still don't know. The other scene also is, doesn't son of Green Goblin, he has something. Yes, that, that, that octopus wants. As the octopus is dangling him over the side of a building. And he says, well, I'll cut your deal. You give me Spider-Man, I'll give you the object. And I was thought, well, no, you've got no bargaining position. The octopus guy can just drop you. <laughs> He's got you by the short and curlies. There's no negotiations going on here. It's very convenient for the plot to send octopus after Spider-Man, thank you much. Although I do think the train stopping sequence is very good. When he passes out and is carried over by all the New Yorkers and the lay down, he's just a kid, you know, and they all come together and support him. That was quite memorable. You know, it was a bit more fresh for the audience. That's all it was. And now once, once it is no longer fresh, it kind of loses its luster. You know, people can look back on it now and go, well, I've seen better. But at the time there was some stuff in there that people just generally hadn't seen. And so it, it kind of was allowed to be a bit better for that, I think. It sounds like we've suddenly got a terribly lukewarm on Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man, it has to be said, is a troubled character in the cinema. And what's interesting about this is this seemed to be the sort of renaissance of Spider-Man in the cinema. And now when we look back on it, it's like, they didn't quite get it, did they? And we're still waiting for that it'll-stand-for-all-time Spider-Man interpretation of Uh, something. Let's wait wait until Marvel takes back over their property then, eh? People say it won't happen, but yeah. Marvel, they keep forgetting that Marvel is now owned by Disney. One day. Yeah. Well, then, and they're least expecting it. Then we'll, then we'll get Spider-Man in Civil War rather than Spider-Man, though. 
Oh, whatever. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, this is, however, I mean, I think, I think as it stands, you know, out of the, uh, the, uh, you know, if you're comparing to the, the, the films that have, that have come out, I think, I think it's still pretty much up there. I mean, I think, I think, um, uh, Doc Gok is, is great. You know, I thought, I, I like the, the origin story. I like the fact that he knows him and there's that dynamic between the characters. You know, it's one villain. That's enough. It's fine. Everyone has the right, out of time to do what they I used think to do. three villains is really optimal. I think of all the films that crammed in lots and lots of villains, they've all been really good. Oh, no, you're right. Um, Sorry, yes. I, I would draw my comment. Um, uh, so, you know, at this stage, Sam Raimi is still loving and cherishing this, this childhood uh, favourite of his. So so we have that on screen. We have that love. There's, you know, there's, some, there's a lot of kind of soap opera stuff with Peter Parker and, and MJ, but, that, you know, that's pretty typical of the comics, so I didn't really mind that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I just thought I came with that very satisfied. Like those two films, I thought, yeah, this is good. You know, this is going to be great. This could be like, wow, we could have like a trilogy of amazing films. Because like if the director does another one, oh, boy, we've got some fun ahead of us. And the other thing that you have to consider when you're thinking about being in 2004 is that uh, other comic book movies you might have been to see were things like, I don't know, Blade Trinity, for example. You know, yes. I think so next sense, as someone who, you know, who loves comics and, and generally hates the adaptions that are made of them, there was a sense of like, by God, like with this and X-Men and that, I'm like, and, and, and particularly this is the sequel, I thought, I think they've got it. This feels like at least now people, you know, even if this director doesn't make any more of these films, you know, Hollywood is paying attention because, you know, this is, this, this is faithful and a good bit of blockbuster fun. So I was beginning to feel like, yeah, this is, no, this is positive, actually. And by and large, you know, that continued. If you contrast what else was about, we have Blade, Trinity, Catwoman and The Punisher were other movies that came out in this year, none of which set the world in fire. No. I quite liked The Punisher. I did too. I thought it was OK. Uh, not only that, but a lot of people who complained about uh, the way that they nerfed The Punisher in this movie failed to take into account that the story of this, the Punisher in that one, in that movie, was based on a particular interpretation from a particular graphic novel. And therefore, you know, they'd kind of gone along with that rather than the traditional Punisher to a certain degree. So, I, I, yeah, I didn't mind it. Lots of people hated it. I can't say the same thing about either Catwoman or Blade Trinity. Well, I like I like the Punisher because he 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 does punish. My goodness, what he does to John Travolta, he utterly destroys the man and lets him know he, he's done it. So I, I loved it for that because previous to that, the Punisher was not so much the Punisher but a motorbiker who shooty shootsies. You know that should have been his name. So I was I was quite pleased that he that he does do this epic takedown of this villain, uh, Catwoman. Yeah, and what was the other one? Oh yes, Blade Trinity. It immediately gets off to a bad start by killing the character they went to great lengths to bring back in the second film. So I thought, well, that was a bit of a waste then, wasn't it? And then Wesley Snipes seems to not be in this one quite so much. And they're setting up for more of an ensemble spin-off series of films, I think, as well. And uh, goodness me, it feels wasted. You're going to bring Dracula in again. And again, it feels like Dracula is a bit wasted. The whole thing of Blade Trinity is a, a confluence of studio i mean the whole thing is studio meddling from top to bottom studio meddling and egos uh david s goyer who'd previously written blade 
2 and various other things. And we'll go on to write more things that, that people are quite familiar with. Uh, proves that he, he's going to, do you want to direct? He goes, yes, I've always wanted to direct. And then proves that why he's such a well-known writer because he can't direct for Toffee. I mean, he's not that great at writing. He gets the job done and is, you know, a good workman. He's not quite a hack. He's got some flair, but he's actually pretty mediocre, but he gets the job done. I mean, he's solid. Uh, As a director, shapeless. Wesley Snipes, he wanted more control, so he's pushing. And that's the thing. David Goyer wanted to take, you know, a firm hand here, with uh, Wesley Snipes and just he wanted to be in control. This was his chance to direct. And so the two butt heads, the studio doesn't want to get involved in that fight. And by the end of the movie, they're communicating with each other through post-it notes. They won't appear on the same set together. So when Wesley Snipes is on screen for most of the movie, another director is directing that scene because he won't have Goya on the soundstage. And when Wesley Snipes isn't there, Goya is directing. So you've got two directors, the other one uncredited, probably because of the general rubbishness of the whole thing. Yeah, then you have this studio idea that as Wesley Snipes wants to step down, they want to take the world of Blade forward. So Goya, who writes as well, invents these vampire killers because that sounds like a really good idea for a a series of movies. Oh, no, wait, no, it doesn't. Oh, and then, of course, there's the kiss of death. Ryan Reynolds in a comic book movie. That still hasn't worked out to date. Uh, And they're about to make a Deadpool movie with him. So I hope everybody's not too pumped up about that. Plus the fact that the villain is terrible. He's either that guy out of Prison Break or, like, some kind of CGI dragon. What's that all about? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing just is a mess. Both of these films, Catwoman and this, I didn't see at the time. It was okay. Of the two, Blade Trinity is a little bit better. Catwoman is pretty dire. I mean, that's that. Uh, yeah, that's a bit of an insult to uh, DC, I think. And uh, yeah, I remember at the time, like, I'm not convinced to go and see this film just because it's got Halle Berry running around with less clothes on. It doesn't really. It looks utterly terrible. Indeed, when I saw it, it is pretty terrible. Let's let's, let's cheer ourselves up a bit. There was one other comic book movie this year, and I think this probably takes the cake for best comic book movie of the year away from Spider-Man 2. Uh, That being Hellboy. That is Hellboy. Hell yeah. Hellboy shamefully treated by the studio uh, at a time when these kind of expensive movies were being released pretty much synchronously. They delayed the release in the UK about five months after it had been out in the States. And I think there was a certain amount, you know, with the internet and everything, where Hellboy, I think, is... It was at a time when people wouldn't show up to the cinema for some comic book movie, which is now... I mean, that's crazy that we now live in a world where that happens. You know, it's like, oh, it's a comic book movie. Oh, well, we'll go and see it then. That's a hallmark that it'll at least be interesting. In those days, they're like, comic books? I don't know. don't know whether that's going to be a good movie. I think I'll stay in it. wasn't a hugely well-known comic book character either. I mean, the other ones are pretty well-known or established previously in other films. I think that the UK audience probably got along with Hellboy a little bit better because we're a bit more adventurous. So if they had simultaneously released it, there is a chance it might have got some buzz. But the UK audience didn't get to see it until it was already dead and buried in the States. So it just never got the chance, really, to be great in on its you know in its in terms of glory. I, I, I have to say, I, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I absolutely love Hellboy. 
Uh, I love the comics, and it's difficult when you read those, kind of imagining anyone to be able to kind of take on that persona, really. And then, hallelujah, it comes from Pullman. I mean, I love the setting. I love the character. It's just a great kind of fusion of kind of pulp superhero fun, really, with Supernatural thrown in as well. Just visually just stunning, you know. I mean, Del Toro has a style, and I think when he's allowed to, you know, get his pencils out and kind of start uh, influencing the design of the of the creatures and everything else, I mean, you get kind of gold on the screen, really. And I think everything came together for this. Should definitely add more recognition. I mean, at least you've got a sequel. But that's good. Yes. And a good and a decent sequel as well. But sadly, no, you know, of all the things I want to see more of, I mean, that is one of them. I would like, you know, if it was more popular, I'd love to have seen that kept going like another film, at least. Seems unlikely now, you know, but who knows? Yeah, a, a little gem. I, I was very, very happy when I saw that. This is definitely like, oh, wow, we really are in this kind of rise of the geek thing because this is an obscure comic. And and here we have an, an adaption that's faithful, you know, and like just perfect. In fact, I don't think I've seen a character quite closely resemble the character it's meant to be um, since um, Patrick Warburton played the Tick. I mean, it's just fantastic. You are aware, Justin, are you yes. not, that, that Hellboy was based on Ron Perlman. Like when they, that, the comic book character is based on Ron Perlman. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, that's why it was. Oh, okay. It was a perfect right. storm. Well, there we go then. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Ian, I know that in the past you've had a, a watering can of, of tepid water and it doesn't seem to have come out at this point. Or are you just hiding it behind your back? Hellboy? No, I washed it and it was it was a barrel full of fine. That's good. You know, I, I didn't go out of there with any particular... On my, on my notepad of grumbles, there wasn't particularly anything written down. But it's not something I've sought out on DVD. It's not something I've rewatched. So I, I did feel like they were trying to compress down a lot of story from the comic book series into, into one film, perhaps. But it was all shaped... I like the fact that it's kind of gone on with the weirdness. There's a little introductory thing at the beginning, and then, bam, it's all set up. They're getting on with their stuff. They're fighting monsters. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. It's a team. Good for them. And John Hurt's always fun. Yeah, I thought the I thought the new team member kind of shtick was a good idea. You know, take a weird kind of world and then put the audience, who largely have no familiarity with this property, and let them be introduced to it. And that was done very economically and then just got, like you say, just kind of got on with it. So, because it's a pretty crazy world. So, yeah. So, uh, should we continue with the good vibes? Because I, I can see um, some grumbles on the horizon. Okay, well, do, do, can, what, what good vibes were you wanting to sh- send our way? Well, Shaun of the Dead, surely. Shaun of the Dead. I don't seem to have that on my list. Pretty sure it was this year. Um, it is indeed 2004, gentlemen. I must have accidentally <laughs> deleted off the thing. Well, I'm glad you mentioned well, that, thing. Yes. Well, yes. over that. We were all Simon Pegg fans before this. People knew who Simon Pegg was. Uh, I remember him from his sketch show days. Uh, and of course, he, his, his big break for us, I suppose, was Spaced, which was a series, which for our generation was pretty, a, a, a comedy series about 20 something, so growing up on pop culture. Spaced was just a wonderful, wonderful thing for us. So when Sean the Dead came out and it was going to have, you know, not just Sam Pegg, but Nick Frost, and it was going to be directed by Edgar Wright, it was, as far as we were concerned, it was Spaced the series. We embraced it totally, and what a jolly, funny little romp it was. Enormous fun, and a, and a great zombie movie, despite being a, a complete comedy, uh, with an all-star cast of British actors. Yeah, I think that it is quite important to note that uh, whereas Spaced was a sitcom 
and intended to have gags all the way through. Wright and Peg were very uh, determined that even though they were obviously going to put a comedy slant on the, the movies they made thereafter, that the movies would satisfy the criteria of the type of movie that they were. So Shaun of the Dead is a zombie movie, Hot Fuzz is an action movie, and uh, World's End is a science fiction body snatchers movie. When you first see Shaun of the Dead, or when I first saw Shaun of the Dead, uh, you know, I was kind of sent sideways by that because the, the zombie moviness of it seemed at odds with the comedy. But over time, it, it's kind of got into my head. It's not just, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure it would, it would have survived. Uh, how ironic a zombie movie survived. It would have survived as, as such cherished, uh, memory if it weren't for that essential substance. I think that's what it was. Space happened to get substance out uh, over time. They don't think they, it was meant to be a television series that happened at a time. And indeed it does date a little if you watch it now. Just a little. It's not quite as fresh as it seemed at the time. But Shaun of the Dead is, was made to stand the test of time because they said, well, it's, you know, people are going to be, you could get this on DVD 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. It's always got to deliver the goods. So that's how they, they achieved it. And well done. I remember loving it at the time and obviously very successful creating a kind of subgenre, really. You know, I think great chemistry, obviously. I mean, yes, loved space. So, so, um, it was nice to kind of see these characters again. Well, not these characters, but these actors again working on some together. Knew pretty much uh, right from the beginning. Something kind of a bit special about it. I loved the kind of deadpan treatment of zombies, almost like an incidental to other aspects of it. I thought that was great. Not being, I'm not a huge zombie fan, so you know, I wouldn't, I would have missed certain the references and things. Yeah, a good, a good solid bit of filming, really, filmmaking. I'm going to possibly steer us at this point into more contentious ground, but I would like to submit for your consideration uh, something I believe that is possibly intentionally and has even enjoyed this and other quarters, the title of the funniest movie ever made. Uh, That, of course, being Team America World Police. (laughs) I cannot recall ever laughing so much in a cinema as I did when I went to watch Team America World Police. In fact, it's what kind of cemented that, you know, South Park has ups and downs because they produce it on a weekly. It's quite innovative. You know, they, they, it's the, uh, one of the few television shows that is made in a week according to what's happening in the world at the time that they're making it. It's quite an intense process to make an episode of South Park. And for that reason, when it hits the, the mark, it's, the funniest television show, I believe, that exists. And when it doesn't, it's all right. Uh, but Team America, of course, was a perfect story. They managed to capture a lot of stuff all at once. And they keep hitting you with different types of gags and different angles on gags and, and you know, satirizing uh, action movies, satirizing current affairs, satirizing, you know, there isn't, there isn't a target that isn't it i don't know sometimes i feel like other people don't like team america as much as i do so are you among those people i find it hilarious and highly enjoyable i mean i don't think i necessarily agree i mean it's hard to say what their politics is you don't know whether they're lampooning something called kind of 
spotlighting it. But it, it can't be united. This hysterical movie full of some really great gags, you know. Suck my dick. I mean, you know, he can't beat that. And everyone, ha- everyone has AIDS. The musical, brilliant, uh, and uh, and puppets having sex scenes, and just all the cliches laid out. Uh, it, it brilliant, like the guy who really hates the hero turning up because you know he's replaced his friend who's died, and you're not going to replace him. Kind of gags going on, and daka daka daka, and and of course lampooning North Korea, a thing we cannot do these days for fear that the the hermit state will crush us with its iron fist. So uh, it, it's, uh, yes, uh, gloriously hysterical and, and so irreverent. I mean, Matt Damon must hate this film because I'm sure he still gets people calling out at him from crowds. You know, Damon. I mean, highly memorable, I think. You know, it's like, it's very quotable. But visually as well, I don't think you're going to forget it. It's not a film that you can watch. And, and it's not a passive film. It kind of picks you up and throws you around. You know, what I loved about it, actually, in some ways, it's a great, I mean, it's a huge kind of homage to, obviously, kind of Jerry Anderson and, and those things, which I kind of loved growing up. Fun to see that. But the context of, you know, that and, w- and what you're actually seeing and, and that juxtaposition of the crudeness and, the, you know, the, 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 the things they're talking about is brilliant, you know, because you have something that actually is just incredibly well crafted of, of that, of that type, obviously, with its own limitations. Um, as well as, as I, for me, it was like a cut above kind of South Park for that. One of my, my, one of my main problems with South Park, which took me a long time to get over, was the fact that it just looked cheap. And I was like, what is this? You know, the kind of artistic kind of soul in me was just like, I can't like this stuff. It looks just like people have just stuck this together. Whereas actually, even though it's got this kind of cheapness inherently built into kind of, uh, that kind of marination kind of thing, um, still, I love I love that as well as all the all the other jokes and stuff. So I I found it easier. Um, yeah, I think it's just a great hoot, really, and it, yeah, memorable, very incredibly memorable. I will continually kind of think about this film and those, those imagery. Uh, yeah, very good, very good. So uh, I think that we've got a couple of uh, categories to sort of bundle up here. Uh, before we start heading for the exit. And one of the categories that we've got this year is uh, disappointing movies, movies that were, they didn't just disappoint. Oh, no, that would be, like, too easy. No, these are movies that deeply undermined and uh, just, well, I mean, Catwoman comes into the into this, but we've already discussed that at some length. But this year, we have the, the first of the Aliens versus Predator movies that came out this year uh, and we also had exorcist the beginning which yes uh, took the exorcist and did similar things to that and um, we also have which i was going to oh, we have the king arthur movie or the king arthur movie that was ashamed of being a king yep. arthur movie uh, that's probably what the problem was there and sky captain and the world of tomorrow that people got quite excited about and then uh, weren't excited about anymore. Also, the remake of the French classic Taxi, uh, starring Queen Latifah, which went about as well as you might expect. So these movies all there in a bundle of of kinder surprise like uh, anticipation followed by disappointment. You can um, see, you can see the King Arthur pitch, can't you? You can see someone going, "Hey, how about we make a film like?" But you know, what if King Arthur was real? But someone took that too literally, and so what we get is a bit depressing. I, um, uh, I, I saw um, King Arthur um, in Italian 
Um, I was at, at the time, <laughs> I was, I was uh, flown over to Italy at Disney and I was working on a very short lived King Arthur based series of books. It didn't, it didn't go anywhere. But uh, while I was there, part of the whole thing was that they, we, we, we got to go and see that. So most of the time, I kind of sat there having a clue what was going on, but occasionally with comments by people telling me. But, you know, even that, I, I mean, I could tell I didn't like it, <laughs> even though I had no idea half the time. Maybe it was good that I wasn't really hearing the dialogue. I can't really comment on that. I've not seen it since, but I just went like, oh, seeing that reference. Oh, hang on, wait a minute. It's all gone in slow motion and there's music. Hmm, I wonder where I've seen this recently before at the cinema. I'm looking at you, uh, Lord of the Rings. And so it's kind of, yeah, just the idea of this kind of attempt to do something realistic is ludicrous for a myth- for mythology, you know? It's like doing yeah. Thor, but do like a gritty Greek version where, you know, there's no uh, there's no kind of actual... Ma- I'm not Thor, I'm... Uh, Hercules, or, or one of the one of the classic myths, but trying to do it all well, gritty and like. And you should watch Troy. You mean it's like doing Hercules, as if Hercules was a historical figure, and all the stories about him ah, were just rumours spread by his plucky band of followers. I'm looking yeah. at you, Dwayne Johnson. You should be very ashamed. Good Conan movie, that Hercules movie. Yeah, though, so exactly. Right. So yeah, don't take something that is you know dri- dripping with kind of magic and wonder and mythology. And then go, ah, nah, it's just a bunch of guys, really, in, like, sixth centuries. Nothing, really. He's like, uh, uh, yeah, Merlin's like, just, yeah. just a madman from the forest. Uh, Guinevere's yeah. just a woman oh, eating great. That's, people. That's all I want. I want something stripped of its majesty and wonder. It, That's what right, I love. It, it is an odd thing to do straight after Lord of the Rings. I mean, I suppose it's refreshing that this time we have the heroes killing white people as opposed to dark-skinned people. That's an improvement on fantasy, I suppose. But uh, apart from that, yes, like, what, what is the point then? What is the point? Different take on, obviously, there's like millions of King Arthur films, so this is our unique thing. No, it's like for people who love, you know, the mythology, we're desperately looking for the thing that nails it because it's totally, you know, we've come close, but we haven't got that definitive thing yet. And there, and there it is. It's like, there's our chance. It's a new film and it's, you know, it's going to have money thrown out and you go, oh, God. Clive Owen as King Arthur, was this good casting on the face of it? Uh, on the face of it, fine. I mean, I quite like Clive Owen. I mean, he's a little bit wooden at times, but, you know, it's King Arthur. I mean, we, uh, the, the, nothing wrong with any of the casting at all. It's just the basic idea sucks. Well, on the subject of, of sucking the fantasy out of fantasy, this is also the year of Troy. So speaking of Hercules, not Hercules, it was Achilles, wasn't it? Achilles... Uh, in this, it's, it's, uh, Troy is a film, Achilles is a great fighter played by Brad Pitt, but there are no gods and there's no magic going on. It, it's just, it's just a Trojan, yeah. the siege happening. And, I don't uh, think there's, uh, to be fair, I think given the way that the Iliad goes down, you, you know, the Odyssey, if you did the Odyssey, yeah, it's just a man in a boat, you know, and he sails around, gets a bit lost, and he finds his way home. You know, that would be bad. The Odyssey has to have cyclopses and because he has to go on a straight, you know, picture a man going on a strange journey. His name is Ulysses and this is his story. You know, the Iliad is a siege. Yeah, gods get involved, but in a political kind of way, you can strip the magic out of the Iliad and you could make a great movie. I, that's not what I'm saying Wolfgang Pearson did. The thing I remember about Troy is there was a shot where he's done a boat and they zoomed out and there are a few boats around it, zoomed out a bit more and a few more boats. And it's like, wow, look at all the boats. It's like, yeah, when the most exciting part of your movie is a zoom shot of a lot of boats, 
that's that signals you've got some kind of an issue going off. But I, yeah, I think King Arthur is is definitely a different thing. You can't. There is no way to do King Arthur. I don't think without any of the mysticism that makes it anything more than it's, it's a slow aspect, doesn't it? You know, there's like there was actually like a round table and knights running round. You know, and no one no one believes that they understand that it's legend. You know, it's got freaking Merlin in it. So. So what you want is that. That's surely that's what everyone wants. Yes, it's the age of myth. They don't, they don't want a scientific explanation of it. Why? It's not within time team. I just want to see like you know, within magic and Celtic mythology. Jesus. Ironically, um, we it, it, we complain about King Arthur because uh, it, it stripped out things that that we as King Arthur fans might have loved. Aliens for, Alien versus Predator, of course, suffered from the exact reverse of thing of people trying to cram too much in a fan service. Uh, it would, I mean, Alien versus Predator may as well be called fan service, the movie, mm. just straight out of the, the gate. I mean, uh, Alien versus Predator kind of works out a bit better for me as of my previous discussion of my love for AVP2, that the two yeah. kind of sit together. And as long as you have AVP2... I suppose AVP is all right. But when I came out of AVP, the thing that stuck most in my mind was if you were going to do this thing where you have it in the modern day set on Earth, why the hell would you then have the alien or it all be set on a, you know, in Antarctica or wherever it was where there aren't any people? Why not just make it a science fiction set on an ice planet? Yeah, my feelings exactly. Thing about the aliens are they've got a big problem, which is they come from face huggers, and that's that was part of the horror in the first movie. But it's become a bit of a weight around ever since then because you've got to find ways to get someone impregnated so aliens can all turn up a bit later on. And this film, there is very much a kind of and someone's impregnated and an alien person. They really do speed up the process of it all happening just 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 so the aliens can finally, finally, finally turn up. The amount of time that predators actually do fight aliens is actually quite small and limited. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it does feel like you came out of the game, that was a bit of a wasted opportunity, and like I said, why is it even, why did it even bother to set it on Earth? Well, yeah, I mean, the answer to that really... question is that then the second movie, I mean, the second movie, as it happened, couldn't have happened like that, the way it did, if the first one had been a science fiction movie set in the future, and which many people may have been grateful for. But yeah, that's what I'm saying, it kind of gives it a pass, because I think the second movie's hilarious. I agree. I, I quite like the second one, but still, though, I just yeah, it annoyed me. It annoys me that aliens are in a contem- contemporary Earth. That has n- kind of that started interfering with my love of the first ones because I don't want it to be. That's like no, that's wrong. It, it has to be science fiction. It just doesn't work. And yes, I agree that the second one, uh, Alien vs Predator, was much better. But I'm not sure whether really, you know, I'm not sure whether I would rather that not exist or just that. Didn't I'll, I'll be honest with you, Leo. Alien vs. Requiem is in no way really contingent on the first film happening at all. The only oh, thing it's is... Not contingent. No, it's not contingent on it, except in the fact that... Um, there's, there's a pre- alien-predator hybrid. That's it. Uh, well, but, it's... And then, and then uh, is it, it kind of... I mean, yes, they could have just started with that. Really? But I agree, at least the second one does rely on the fact that it's on Earth, whereas you're quite right. Setting it in a pyramid in Antarctica is, is ridiculous. I mean, as I understand the coin book plot line, it's basically the predators deliberately put the alien eggs down in the colony so the aliens will erupt and then they can come down and have the hunting party. 
So you can just do that to any American town. The, pred- the predators can turn up, bung a few eggs down there, and then go away going tee-hee-hee, set their alarm clock, and get up and have a good time. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think it might have even been better. And I think, in fact, there would have been a chance for a bit more substance. Bearing in mind the fact they wanted a pyramid for the Predators. And bearing in mind the fact that, the, famously, the reason that the first Predator movie is set in South America is because they like the heat. You In 2004, you're sufficiently far enough removed from the original Predator movie to have it take place in some South America, you know, like Belize or something, and then have like a revolutionary kind of army of, you know, and all the kind of abduction stuff and current affairs. And then in the middle of this, in the same way as Predator, oh, my God, suddenly aliens are. That would have been hilarious mm. and fantastic. But no, they could decide, oh, well, well, we'll try and distance it a bit from Predator by setting it somewhere cold. It's like, oh, great, thanks for that. Hmm. The other thing that, that's a bugbear of mine, this pops up from time to time, and you'll get it again in Prometheus, is this whole idea of aliens came down and taught us how to farm and build things. I am sorry, how insulting to want to be to our ancestors that they were too stupid to figure out seed goes into ground and brick goes on brick. That's true. Uh, yes, true. Well, uh, you're not you're obviously talking about the Egyptians coming from space, yes. though, are you? Wouldn't, you wouldn't ridicule that idea, because that obviously is sound. Yeah. Uh, let's move yeah. on to our other cluster of films. It's a moment in history, 2004, because I don't believe I've seen a list before which had quite so many spectacular cinematic bombs in it. The list includes... Around the World in 80 Days, the Jackie Chan movie, it just disappeared, didn't do any business whatsoever. And then you have Chronicles of Riddick, that is, you know, renowned for its low box office take. Uh, and you also have, well, Exorcist, the beginning, appears on both of the lists in the disappointments and in the, because that did no business whatsoever. And we have the remake of The Stepford Wives, that also bombed at the box office this year. So, I mean, just, oh, and then again, Taxi, that also cuts across both disappointing uh, lists because that disappeared without trace. So, yeah, I mean, these are films that didn't just not take very much money. They really tanked. And it's a huge list for one year to have all these things come out, which just, no, nobody went to see them. I've been to, I've seen many of them, not all of them. Yeah. And in fact, I'm a big fan of the Chronicles of Riddick. And it is a shame, in fact, that the Chronicles of Riddick did so badly at the box office due to studio interference in the cut. The Chronicles, the Riddick thing was quite interesting because previously this reunion had one film, which is Pitch Black, which just happened to have Riddick in it as a, as, a, as the breakout character. And so then we we go to move this on to become a franchise about Riddick, and it was it was very clever the way they did across multiple media of making it a kind of inst, insta franchise because you not only had that uh, the was it uh, dark something or other? There was like a thirty minute dark long dark fury the animated feature and, and uh, escape from Bo- not um, one. Well, escape from Butcher Bay was the one that was contemporary, and then that was so successful they made Assault on Dark Athena, which I've not yet played. Uh, and then of course I'm you had yes, yeah. Then of course you, you had the Chronicles of Riddick, and uh, I suppose it was in some ways just like ah, instant trilogy, everybody. Uh, so that was quite interesting. And we were both went and saw Riddick together, and I think we reasonably enjoyed it. There was a lot of running around with plots at the beginning. I quite liked it when he got to prison. I can just kind of be Riddick in a, in a hostile environment, because I feel that's where he works better. I wish they hadn't gone for the whole kind of, here's the last of his kind nonsense, because um, it really is a trope at this stage. But and, you know, and the fact, of course, that not only was he the last of his kind, but the last of his kind, his kind were called 
Furians. Oh, we're really angry. Yes. I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that was yeah. So these these sort of mass well, master predator kind of tribe of people, whatever guys. I, I can't say I enjoyed this as much as I did in uh, Pitch Black. I'd have liked to have seen more, although I can see why it didn't work. I was a bit depressed that it's not the same actress, but the character, the young woman from the first film, is, is bumped off in this one, as is the other survivor from the first movie. He's bumped off as well. Um, so that's always a bit mean, I feel, when they revisit these films and then pick off some of the people uh, who struggled in the first film. To be fair, Jack stroke Kira stroke whatever only gets killed to set up Riddick's journey to the underverse. Yes, I, 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 I agree with you there. He's like, well, she's obviously coming back. But uh, are we ever going to see that, even with another Riddick film? I don't know. Uh, but uh, nice yeah, apparently of... we are. Oh, good. Uh, it surprises me as much as anyone else. But yeah, I think I might have are. to sit down. I already am. Oh, never mind then. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an adjustment with this film because... It is like tonally just so different from Pitch Black. It's like almost like a different genre now. We're going into this kind of weird, almost kind of Dune-like version of of kind of science fiction. Space Conan. Yeah, it is kind of pulpy, and it is kind of, uh, but it is also this rich kind of weird and strange cultures that we've got no clue of when we watch Pitch Black because it's just a conventional kind of aliens kind of uh, rip-off. Uh, although I enjoy it, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's set in that kind of, that kind of future. Um, so yeah, you kind of watch this and go, oh wow, where the hell did this come from? Sun loses. Okay. Um, it's like take one character and build the universe around it. But I enjoyed it for that because I, you know, I like, I love me some kind of creative ideas on screen and in boy, it did look pretty. And I, 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 I loved all the kind of villains and the kind of over the top kind of melodrama of all of that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I went, I kind of, uh, yeah, just went with it because, you know, it was fun. Over time, Riddick's universe is kind of, I, I really love the, the Riddick universe. I think it's an amazing thing and it, it needs more development. It needs more stuff to happen in it to really entrench it. It is a bit weird. You yeah. can, I mean, cause the point is that what it effectively does is it retroactively says, you know, that pitch black thing we made. Yeah. That is kind of takes place in this universe, but it's kind of a sidebar. This is what we're really on about. And then people kind of got their heads blown off. Yeah. I, I think kind of people came out and said, well, really like, what the hell was that? But then, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I did that too. I'm a fan in the, in the long run, but I came out, I was like, well, that wasn't kind of what I expected. Um, and then over time it's kind of, but in a good way. But then I think a lot of other people were like, no, I don't like it. Don't like yeah. it. No, I can see it would frighten people off because they're like, what? I thought there's like safe science fiction, you know, everything's a bit blue and metallic and there's, there's creepy odd creatures, but you know, it's like not weird, right? This is like stuff like role players and things people like. This is all odd and strange cultures and like, oh no, I'm not sure about this. I, I would love there to be a film series that was kind of set in a space Odyssey universe. Star Wars is the closest we get, get. So I kind of, I would have high hopes for this franchise really. I think, even after watching Chronicles Riddick, you don't have a very clear idea of what the shape of the universe is, or who runs what, what's in charge of whom. There's these ethereals buzzing around, but not quite sure about those. I mean, who is opposing the Necromundas? Is there some kind of galactic government that's at war with them or something? Surely they should be involved in all this attacking planet nonsense that's going on. So, yeah, the, the universe isn't super clearly defined and you've got to do that with with your with your universe building as it were i think so it seems a bit vague and 
The, I mean, I suppose well, it gives them freedom you know, to do what they like, but because, you know, normally you might get, you know, if, if if perhaps this was based on something that was popular, we may get a trilogy, you know, introducing us to this world. But you go, damn. Here you go. Yeah, it, 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 it's fine now because I've got Guardians of the Galaxy as well, which is another thing. Also, Star Wars is coming back too. So if I want my epic science fiction yeah. coherent universe, I, I've, got, I've got a few to choose from these days in the pick and mix. So yeah, Chronicles of Riddick, I think, is uh, is something that kind of got unfairly. But yeah, I mean, it really tanked. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it took so little of Oz office. And obviously, it was it wasn't a cheap movie to make. No. Uh, did anyone except me see the remake of the uh, of the Stepford Wives? Yeah, I've seen it. You've think, seen it. I think I might have mm-hmm. seen it, and I instantly wanted to forget all about it. I think there's definitely a, a case to make. Let's say. If you're going to remake the Stepford Wives, it's it's possibly a danger sign before you even sit down to, to get to the actual production. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, we've got a great director. Look at that, Frank Oz. What? Fozzie Bear, Fozzie Bear and Yoda. He's going to direct the remake of the Stepford Wives, a chilling satire, feminist satire. Um, I'm seeing a problem. Yeah, we've got this great cast as well. Nicole Kidman. Oh, that's not so bad. Matthew Broderick. What? Uh, Glenn Close. No, okay, we're fine with this. Bette Midler. No, I'm not. Now I'm not. And Christopher Walker. It's like, I'm not sure he's got the kind of restraint that's required to really bring the chillingness across. Yeah. I mean, really, I quite, I, I, to be honest, I quite like it. That's a sort of a museum piece of just of this is how a movie fails. It, it's all right. I mean, but the point is, I shouldn't think, oh, what's that Stepford Wives remake? That would be a light afternoon's nonsense entertainment i mean really that does undermine the entire point of the movie and of the story if you thought what we saw was bad the dvd has some deleted scenes on it and are you aware of the deleted scenes on 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 this movie No. no no right i'll just sum it up this way in one of the scenes that they decided might be just pushing it a little too far one of the husbands demonstrates that their robot wives can be used as cash dispensers Right. Was it supposed to be a comedy or something? Quite sure. I mean, I think with this, I mean, the the original has has a kind of chilling feel about it. It's kind of body snatches feel about it. Whereas whereas this one, the absurdity of it, how do you talk someone to going, oh, yes, kill your wife and replace her with a robot? How do you do that so quickly to somebody? I want to know. How, How can this get out of control in a small town? How, how does well, offing I mean, the mother of your children happen exactly? Well, in the first one, Ira Levin, uh, novelist, author of Rosemary's Baby, The Boys from Brazil and The Stepford Wives. You see, he's an author who has a body of work that is intended. I mean, you know, they say Americans can't do satire. Ira Levin can do satire. It's really biting and actually not that funny, but he can do it. it he's always taking that idea and moving, you know, like, what if you were giving birth to the devil's baby? What if Hitler was cloned and living in Brazil several times over? What mm. if you know, men were offing their wives and replacing them with robots? It's all social commentary. And, yeah. you know, when they made the original 70s movie, they, they did take this time to say, you know, what it's basically saying, or it's the satire, the, the sharp bite is, yeah, men would do this if you could just kill your wife and replace it with a sex bot that did, you know, housework. Men would totally do that. One just goes straight to the sex bot. Why do you have to have 
<laughs> a woman you have to kill first. That's just like, oh. Um, well, I mean, no, with the idea in the original novel, obviously, yes, it, future men could just have a woman designed to their specification. I mean that. I think in the original novel, you had to have an original on which the, the new one was based. You couldn't just make something up. And that made a problem because, I mean, you know, you could have an alternative version of this where women were selling their physical specifications to men as, I mean, that's a novel to be written. But, yeah, I think that was kind of the rationale behind in the 70s. It was like, well, you already have a wife, but, you know, how can we replace her with a sex bot without anyone knowing? Maybe if your wife had a little accident. But, I mean, the whole point is it's a satirical thing. It's like Ira Levin doesn't actually believe, I don't think that men are like that. But he's setting a novel in a universe where men are like what that kind of commentary says. Yeah, That's completely. And I, and I think it's very much, the first one is very much a product of his time, okay? In in that, you know, you've kind of got the rise of kind of women's lib and you've got these very kind of old-fashioned men who are threatened by that. And isn't it better if they just look sweet and do, you know, stay in the kitchen and do all the kind of things that, you know, like I grew up with, and I want I want to retain that thing. We don't really live in that time now because people have long kind of, you know. I mean, there are some dinosaurs around, but society is not is not kind of doesn't have those views now. So why would you have to? Why would you manufacture? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, I understand. And I understand the commentary about oppress, a, 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 the oppression of women socially. I get that and conforming them to roles and expectations being laid on them. I get all that. It's just that when you apply this this nightmare fantasy to it, why would you want a robot? What is the point of a robot that likes you? The robot is programmed to like you. You, you just end up hating yourself, you wouldn't you? Done, you could have done maybe if you were desperate to kind of bring this thing back. You could have done it. But, I mean, certainly just take, turning it into a kind of comedy seems a bit weird uh, anyway. And yeah, it just doesn't just doesn't really hang together, really, because what is it? What is this for? One, the concept is ludicrous now, and it just doesn't. Why would anyone do that? And and then it's not really that funny either if it's going to be a comedy. And yeah, it's devoid of anything really. It's not really a satire of anything. It's not. I mean, what well, I had to class it really. It's barely a comedy. Yes, um, it's 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 just a weird film that that got made, and you know I I appreciate it in in verse. I mean I own a copy, just for its complete weirdness. It just like what the I mean, hell is Frank, Frank Oz is capable of making some decent films, but it's certainly not that's not his area. Like if he was to go down that that the the, the roots of the original film, but I would have to say looking at his body of work and that it's got to be definitely probably the worst out of all of those. Yeah. Definitely. So uh, let's finish off uh, with a final bundle of movies. And this is, I'm quite interested in the fact that this exists in, in this year. Films that kind of flew under the radar, as it were, uh, or have passed into it. I'm going to bundle in because uh, it's worth talking about the Bourne supremacy into this. That's kind of the forgotten Bourne movie. People remember the beginning and the end, but the middle, not so much. But yeah, we've also got District 13 came out in this year, which was a decent little movie. And we also have well, oh, Eternal, Eternal Sunshine. Sunshine came, yeah, yes. definitely. Yeah, Eternal Sunshine came out. Flight of the Phoenix is perfectly serviceable remake yeah. of an earlier film that nobody remembers these days. Then we have Kung Fu Hustle came out this year. 
Man on Fire, the Tony Scott remake with Denzel Washington, which is uh, an amazingly amazing movie uh, that nobody watched till after the fact, as it happens. But but there we go. That's the way it comes out sometimes. Uh, and I think that about yeah, that about does it. But it's a little bundle of of, of movie going joy, and, and particularly impressive for the fact that, with the exception of Born Supremacy, which people did turn out for at the time, many of these didn't actually maintain get to sort of be the things that they are in this day and age until after the fact. And in fact, the Bourne supremacy is almost the reverse. People turned out in their droves to watch a Bourne sequel. And these days, uh, it doesn't really get discussed that much. It's known as sort of the, I mean, weirdly, you know, the Bourne uh, supremacy or the Bourne series is quite, has an element of doerness in it to begin with. And the Bourne supremacy, therefore, being the Empire Strikes Back of the Bourne trilogy is particularly depressing. So maybe that's... Uh, that's what's going on there. But uh, but yes, gentlemen, these are the hidden gems, as it were, of 2004. Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind. I watched this with the other Justin that we know, uh, Leo, Justin Park, uh, former housemate of mine. And uh, it, it was one of those films that it was kind of under my radar. I, I knew kind of about it. And then when he sat and watched it, and just being so surprised and so entertained by its cleverness and visuals and, and just being so enwrapped by the idea and as, as they unpack its implications of it all as it heads towards its end. I don't need to explain what it's about, do I? That it's, it's a guy who's trying no, to... No, no. Yeah. Justin, I thought this film would have been something that you thought was quite clever and precious. Am I wrong? Um, I don't think I saw this, actually, at the time. Really? Um, yeah. I used to call on DVD later well, myself. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it had the impact that he might have assumed it would have done. I don't know. Well, look, it's Jim Carrey doing that type of role, which I always enjoy that he's capable of kind of pulling out something. Um, certainly visually, you know, entertaining. You know, it's one of those films you have to pay attention. You kind of, you take on all these kind of weird, uh, symbolism and, uh, and, uh, I kind of like the inventiveness of it, but I'm, um, it's not something I'd revisit, I think. You know, it's like, I think it kind of went over me and I went, well, okay, fine. That was, that's some interesting performances. That was, uh, interesting visually stuff that was going on there. Um, but I don't know whether that, that was enough for me to go, wow, that's, that's it, made an impact on me in some qu- capacity. I, I quite like the surreal dreamscape that he's in, yeah. that he's being oppressed by the erasure that's pressing in. And initially he's, he's overjoyed because yeah. it's erasing the bad end of his relationship, but he starts getting to the bit where he starts wondering why he loved her in the first place. And there's also the overarching message about, uh, you know, we, of course we'd all like to erase certain things from our memories, but this is, this is a bad thing. It, it attracts from you and leaves you totally vulnerable to making all the same mistakes again because you've removed yep. your capacity to learn from what you've gone through, even yes. though it was bad. Because when they completely forget each other, they start off having a bit of an attraction again to each other when they first meet, you know, and things like that. And of course, there's Kirsten Dunst's character who makes exactly the same mistake last time that she had, and she was completely uh, uh, twisted in the story, by the way. Sorry, everyone, that she's she's forgotten to me, and she's blundering into exactly the same error again. Uh, and so, for those things of cleverness in it, was great. And we only see uh, until the end, really. We only really see. What's her name? The lead love interest, British actress, oh, Titanic. Yes, when we, we see yeah. her, see her through his memories of her, and, and things like that. Little little things like that about perception, memory, fascinated me at the time. It's weird because it's two different romantic comedies, 
sent through the science fiction lens of Terry Gilliam, mm. uh, which is possibly why you thought that, I mean, it's not Terry Gilliam, it's uh, Michelle Gondry. But I think of Michelle Gondry's movies, every movie after this was either the Green Hornet or it was like, if it's a Michelle Gondry passion project, it got really bizarre, like really, really odd. So this is kind of like in that media where he just got to the point where it has that kind of frosty Gilliam-esque-ness about it. But then at the same time, it's two romantic comedies. Do you really want to mix up Brazil with a romantic comedy? I'm not sure, you know. And that is, so yeah, it's a complex movie to get your head around. Well, relationships uh, are complex, I think, I think is, is the point we're going to cross as well. Definitely. And it, yeah, it's, it's one of the years, as I say, hidden gem, something that's often overlooked afterwards i think i'm imagining has everyone seen district 13 or is yes. it just me I, yes. i've seen it yeah i've seen it but everyone's seen district it. 13 i mean what's interesting about this one is that they've recently remade it uh, for the west uh, as one of paul walker's last movies it was called brick mansions whereas district 13 mixed up pierre uh, david bell doing uh, parkour as he does which it happens in brick mansions as well cyril raffaelli is a fine martial artist, a very acrobatic martial arts performer. And so they mix up a stunning parkour with uh, head-splitting martial arts. Well, Cyril Raffaelli isn't in Brick Mansions. Paul Walker is. And what's Paul Walker's talent? Um, unfortunately, it's talking about the bro code and being all sort of, hey, I'm just a guy, you know. And so they mixed up some parkour with uh, some sort of uh, low-key, blue-collar, working hero-type guy. Yeah. It didn't really work. I haven't seen it yet. I wanted to catch it to see the difference. But I hear that it certainly is not as spectacular as District 13. If District 13 has a shortcoming, it is that the parkour, which was brand new in 2004 to the cinema screen, is all kind of front loaded. And the martial arts, which was not brand new in 2004, kind of happens towards the end. And therefore, they've kind of got it the wrong way around. All the good stuff happens right at the beginning and then kind of it devolves into something a bit more standard but even having said that it's it's definitely a, a fun action romp uh, again from the stable of luke besson so i just thought i'd, I'd sort of, uh, give a hat tip to that and then man on fire am i alone in having seen that i haven't seen that i haven't seen it I either right basically there's a guy with a past and he now works his past is military sort of you get the impression black ops kind of military and he has regrets about his life of violence and war and, and bringing death to people so now he's he's quote unquote retired he works as a private contractor and he's hired by a wealthy man to be a bodyguard for the family and particularly to their little daughter you see where this is going at this point because what happens is that in order to uh, get to the important family who have retained the services of Denzel Washington, Denzel Washington does his job as best he is able, but he gets a bit blindsided by a very powerful enemy of the father who takes the daughter and kidnaps her. And at that point in the narrative, Denzel Washington's character does something. And I think it's particularly important that it's Denzel Washington's playlist because he does that whole Denzel Washington thing of he talks and he smiles and he's charming and he's calm and nothing's too much of a problem. And also they take the time to build up this relationship where he's like, he's to the girl, I promise you, I'm going to look after you. 
everything's going to be fine. And when it isn't, and when he finds himself in that position of having let her down, the vengeance that he lays upon the kidnappers is like the number of people who go, I just watched this film, Denzel Washington, and holy shit, the things he does. Yeah, I mean, we had the Punisher in this year. Man on Fire is like a whole different type of Punisher. And Denzel Washington brings a whole different type of Denzel Washington to the screen. And it, it is just, it is remarkable in its vengeance. I mean, it's emotionally complicated as well. I mean, it's just a, a stunning movie and passed over by most people. Uh, they don't really know what it is. And I think Denzel Washington does suffer from this. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention in our list of box office bombs, the Denzel Washington remake of The Manchurian Candidate. There's no reason, particularly, it's not particularly, you know, great remake of The Manchurian Candidate. It's kind of average at best. But there was no reason for it to tank quite as hard as it did. But Denzel right. Washington, yeah, made two movies this year, which people... They're not even classable as forgettable. People didn't know them to forget them in the first place. And whereas with the Manchurian Candidate, it's like, no, I like it because I'm a Denzel Washington fan. But with Man on Fire, the fact that people still to this day don't know this movie is just a bit of a crime, really. It's it's a it's an amazing movie. Homework for you there. Then. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so there we go. Uh, I, I think that kind of does it. Oh yes, there is one. Final item, which I think I can sum up pretty quickly. I went to see National Treasure when it came out. Hmm. This was a time when people were quite excited about the fact that there was going to be a movie of the Da Vinci Code. They were quite excited about that. Like, oh, I can't wait for that movie. That'll be good, they thought. And uh, famously, of course, one of the bidders for the rights to make the, the Da Vinci Code movie was Disney. And they couldn't come to an arrangement with the rights holders. And so they went, well, screw you then. And so they made this Da Vinci Code Indiana Jones ripoff called National Treasure. Um, and I enjoyed it. I didn't know anything about the Da Vinci Code at the time. I just thought that was a fun bit of nonsense. And uh, I showed it to a friend after I bought it on DVD. Uh, I, sh- I, I was watching with a friend and he said, and this was, I think this was after the Da Vinci Code had come out or when the, the adverts were out and we knew it was kind of, kind of going to be a bit dark. And he said, wow, that was all the fun you won't have watching The Da Vinci Code, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and that pretty much sums up National Treasure for me. All the fun you don't have watching The Da Vinci Code. Yes, it is It is quite clearly a Da Vinci Code clone, although they couldn't quite think of anything more interesting than the grail to go find. So instead, it's, it's just a room full of a crap load of gold. I like that, though. I think that's fine. Oh, yeah. Next best thing, just lots of money. Yeah, I think it's all right. I mean, I think it's it just need. I think it needs a bit of oomph. Like, I think it needs the the, the Indiana Jonesness turned up. I think a bit. It's because it's obviously treading this line between we're trying to be kind of realistic to a certain extent. So you know, we're not having traps and things and create too much craziness. But then, then that takes away some of the inherent kind of fun. In a way, I I would yeah. A bit more like that, and a bit more. This isn't real, but we're having fun with archetypes. We're having fun. We're having fun with um, you know these these iconic things about American history. Um, why not? Let's make it even more. Just push that boat more, and that. That's, I just felt it was a little bit lackluster in places. I think that uh, in a way that could be because you're not American. I think to yeah, Americans, it's pretty crazy. Because yeah. you're fundamentally messing with stuff that's rammed down their throats from birth. 
they had to be kind of respectful, but they wanted to push it a bit far. So they were kind of sailing close to the wind on, oh, there's a secret code written on the back of the Declaration of Independence and the Liberty Bell and there's something about special sunglasses and what have you. And you basically romp through every important icon of American history and the establishment of the independence of the colonies. And you just like, you go, oh, yeah, secret codes and boys' own adventure stuff all the way through that stuff. Is like to America, that's pretty far out. Whereas outside of America, you're like, yeah, all right. It's like what I was probably looking for is something like Assassin's Creed. They don't have the ridiculousness of when you really think about Indiana Jones. He's an archaeologist. So in this, these guys are not like superheroes. They're just guys. Who, it's more kind of clownish. They're just about getting away with it by the skin of their teeth. And what they're getting away with is not as spectacular as what Indiana Jones gets away with. The other thing is that the, the danger of wishing for it to be more like Indiana Jones is made quite plain by National Treasure Book of Secrets, uh, which we shall talk about another day. But where they go, oh, look, and it's his dad. Oh, and it looks his mom. And, you know, yeah, they, they do that kind of gag. So, yeah. But yes, so uh, National Treasure, I think, brings us to the end of, of, of 2004 with a, a little bit of a, a secret code, decoder ring, special set of sunglasses kind of a way. Yeah, it's a weird year, I think, in summary. It's got some big things. It's got a hell of a lot of bombs and disappointments. Mm. And then it's got a lot of hidden bits and bobs and gems and things. That, it's a year you, you have know. to pan for it, isn't it? Yeah, it's a year where the things that you're going to really walk out there are going... I enjoyed that. Or either one, hated by everyone else. I mean, uh, we didn't really talk about Sky Captain. I quite like Sky yeah, Captain. I, I quite think like Sky Captain as well. Yeah. But I once had someone, and it's one of these things, it's very rare, where uh, somebody came up with a, a criticism of the movie where I'm like, I totally have to give you that if that's what you... He said, I don't like that movie because in the first 20 minutes, it promises you a fight between giant robots and men in warplanes from the First World War. And then it sidesteps that issue and goes off and does something else entirely. And I wanted my giant robot yeah. plate fight. And I was like, I watched again, I'm like, you know what? He's completely correct in that. Yeah, and if you were, if that's what you wanted and you didn't get it, I can stand beside you and say, yeah, he's right to be angry. You should totally not have done that. I, there's other things I like about it, so yeah, I'm still- going to go with it. Absolutely, I, I agree with that. But you know what? The reveal of who the villain is, I absolutely love. And I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah, I thought it was a very nice touch. One of the sad things about Sky Captain World Tomorrow is that uh, I think it's Michael Gambon is in it. And yeah. he he is very similar. There's a story about um, the reason that David Warner is the villain in Tron is because they originally signed Peter O'Toole. And they had to let Peter O'Toole go because he just didn't get it. And he turned up on set all ready to go, had the script. They were trying to direct him. He was not. He was shapeless. The director went over to us like, what is going on? He goes, I don't want to rock the boat here, but I just don't understand what this is. I don't understand who I am or what. And they just couldn't explain it to him. They couldn't un- explain Tron to Peter O'Toole. So they, they looked through their list and David Warner was there and they went, have you got a problem with this? Do you know what's happening? He said, yeah, I know what's happening. So they replaced Peter O'Toole reluctantly with David Warner because David Warner understood it and Peter O'Toole just couldn't get his head. He couldn't wrap his head around it. So you can't, you can't do anything. How can you learn to act? 
something if you just don't understand what it is. And in the same way, because of this thing where Sky Captain is all green screen and there is there's very little in the way of actual stuff. It's everybody standing in front of a green screen all the time with a few desks and chairs around. Michael Gambon, I believe is Michael Gambon, just didn't get it. He just couldn't. And so every line he says is awful. He does. Thankfully, he's only in it for about a sum total of 50 seconds. But it's just the thought of having this great actor and then just not really being able to use them because they just don't get what you're doing. Yeah, I think the green sting definitely kind of killed a lot of the stuff there. It, it added a his kind of level. That I can see why they did it, because obviously it was much, much cheaper. But I think that it therefore creates this kind of less believable world. And that seems funny, when, say, in a world with giant robots. But in a way, I kind of would have liked to see something more, you know, a bit more money thrown in that world because I love the world. Yeah, where that comes from, though, is that the director, Kerry Conrad, had made a short movie of the same sort. And the whole point of the movie was to make this epic visual feast on a tiny bobbins budget of green screen. It was that was the point of the concept. And it didn't. Haha, it didn't fly. No. And another disappointment at the box office. But thankfully, it didn't actually cost that much. So it didn't lose so much. In, oh, if, if people are wondering why it is we haven't talked about the remake of Taxi, who was starring Queen Latifah and Jimmy Fallon, uh, where might they go, Ian, to try and provoke me into a terrible rage about the mere existence of such a travesty? Well, one place you can go to test Leo's blood pressure would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But, uh, of course, podcasts are what it's all really about. And for those who want to point your browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, kids.podomat.com please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download to your own PC for dark reasons of your own but this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found for the legacy of our podcast you must go to uh, leostableford.com where you can find uh, yes at the aforementioned archive as well as many other things uh, which you may find to be of interest uh, but uh, not pictures so much maybe movies recently but not pictures where might people go for pictures justin uh well yes they might go because they're 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 missing us talking about the visual feast that is um the incredibles you will find examples of uh, my work not quite up to that standard but uh, you know i'm trying uh, on my deviantart page uh justinwhite.deviantart.com and you know today, uh, i just i just want to round off by just us all having a group hug and expressing joy uh, because George Lucas has come out and complained that, that Disney haven't used any of his ideas. <laughs> yes, I heard about that. <laughs> I was like, well, I can't say I'm surprised, <laughs> if I'm honest. I was thinking that you were going to get us around to have a group hug about the fact that that's it. 30 years down. We're on the home stretch, gentlemen. Yes. There's not long left. Yes, let's not, let's not think about it too much. No, in fact, please oh, well, don't think know, about it. I want my the... Saturday nights back. I haven't had a Saturday night for two years. <laughs> uh, well, there are plans to stop that happening, so, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's the, uh, no, I mean, you know, the end of the great, I mean, I remember when I, when, when the great work was proposed, the, the thought of coming all this way to here, 
there's like, you know, five more year shows left. It's Ooh. interesting that what was me dredging my memory banks so of the nostalgia, uh, which was kind of overwhelming to begin with, we're now going to films that, like, I probably didn't see any of these that long ago. They certainly don't feel that old. It's good to talk about them, but, yes, it's a different feeling I'm getting now from the films we talk about. It, well, it is weird to think that this is... We're talking 2004. Definitely we're entering an age where you think, oh, well, this is a movie that exists in the contemporary world. But, really, if, if you were, like, five in 2004, you are now coming up to your 16th birthday. Yes. And so some of these are movies from when you were a little kid. Yes. That's, that's, that's it. With that sobering thought, right. we're all going off to apply for our bus passes. So, uh, thank you very much for listening. And, uh, we shall see you all soon. Bye bye. Farewell. Goodbye. I don't crawl off now being the geriatric I realise yes. I am. Thanks, Thanks for that, Leo. I'm bummed out now. <laughs> right. Right. Goodbye, Get off my lawn!